Two things we can be completely certain about, and the one is uncertainty. We can be, un we can be certain that there's uncertainties because we simply don't know. There's another one we can be very confident of, and that is change. Uh, change is a constant, which is like a contradiction, but it's true. Change is a constant. True in our world, true in our families, true in our personal lives, as we keep on getting older. If you're my age, you probably remember when uh, grandparents were old, right? Remember that? And uh, if she was a grandma, well, of course she was old. Now it's amazing how youthful some of you grandmothers look. <clears throat> Tony Campolo has a bit of a wise crack. And, uh, you know, you're familiar with Tony Campolo, pastor, long-term preacher. And uh, he says, you know, there was a time when, uh, when there was a wedding, the very attractive person was the bride, right? Now it's the bride's mother. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's the bride's grandmother. <laughs> but things change. Things change. Uh, I think that change is even accelerated in our era. I uh, often think of all the changes that have occurred since my, my dad passed away. I was a young adult, and so I had a kind of a, a, an interesting buddy type of relationship with him, and I think his mind was a little bit like, like my mind, too, where we were interested in different, you know, uh, scientific or uh, not science strictly, but the innovations and new things and stuff, and and, uh, but I think of the many changes, and I sometimes would fantasize, what would it be like if he could come back for two or three days, and I'd like to show him all of the changes and the way we do things now. And, uh, and I think it says something about my mindset and his mindset, that I'm thinking, I'm thinking of those kind of things. Obviously, far more important are the many people that he's never met, my wife and my family and my uh, sister's uh, husband and family and so on. But uh, it would be fun to just show him some of the things today. He died in 63, uh, long before the internet, or the smartphones, or the computers. I remember for me, even in my ministry, what a difference it made to have word processing instead of the old typewriter with uh, erasing mistakes, you know. Word processing. And then memory, even before, before, even before I had a computer, I had this word processors with a memory on it so I could reprint whatever I had done. And then cruise control, that would be different for him, driving down the road. But I hardly know where we'd start, but there'd be lots of things to rehearse and to demonstrate and show the difference. Yeah, I said that I think change has been accelerated in our era. But change has always been inevitable. Listen to the words from this old familiar hymn. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changes not, abide with me. 
Do you know when that was written? 1847. Change was happening even then. Here's an urgent letter that was dated on January the 31st, 1829. And it was sent to President Andrew Jackson. 1829, that's 189 years ago. I did the math. No, actually, I cheated. I used the calculator, right? Talking about change. 189 years ago, and, and this, was, this was sent to the president from the governor of New York. The canal system of this country is being threatened by the spread of a new form of transportation known as railroads. The federal government must preserve the canals for the following reasons. Number one, if canal boats are supplanted by railroads, serious unemployment will result. Captains, cooks, drivers, hustlers, repairmen, and lock tenders will be left without means of livelihood, not to mention the numerous farmers now employed in growing hay for horses. Both builders would suffer and tow line, whip and harness makers would be left destitute. Canal boats are absolutely essential to the defense of the U.S. In the event of the expected trouble with England, the Erie Canal would be the only means by which we could ever move the supplies so vital to waging modern war. As you may well know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines, which in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, they roar and they snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. <laughs> The Almighty never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speed. That was Martin Van Buren, governor of New York. Yeah. Change. <laughs> Always been part of the experience. As I said earlier, the one constant is change, right? Well, we just looked at Joshua chapter 1 where the children of Israel are on the edge of major change. Their years of wilderness wanderings are over. Moses is gone. Joshua is their new leader. And they are about to occupy the promised land of Canaan. A new era with new challenges, new responsibilities, Amazing, huge change. I can only imagine this would have been both exciting and scary. And I am sure that Joshua would have had some anxious moments. I mean, Moses was a hard act to follow. And now he's in charge. But God speaks to him and he says, be strong and courageous. And we see this repeated several times in the passage. In verse 6, be strong and courageous. 
verse 7, be strong and very courageous. And then uh, verse 9, be strong and courageous. Don't be hesitant, Joshua. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Be confident. Be strong. Be very courageous as you enter the land. In the context of all that change, be strong and very courageous. We might ask, well, what's the basis for that positive outlook? Is it like saying, you know, you just take a look in the mirror every morning and tell yourself that you can do it, you can do it, you can do it? You know, put your best foot forward. Don't even imagine the possibility of defeat. Just be positive. You know, like that old uh, song many, many years ago, (laughs) don't worry, be happy, you know? Sort of like lifting yourself up with your own bootstrap. No, that's, that's not it at all. But rather, the Lord gave him a very solid, objective basis for this call to confidence and courage in the midst of change. And I want to note that the basis that God gives him for confidence in the experience of change has to do with the things that will not change. Don't be afraid. Don't be apprehensive. But be strong and courageous because of certain things that will not change but will remain the same. And I suggest that is something that we all want and need in the very flux and all the changes of our life. We need that constant. We need that anchor point. Well, what are the unchangeables here in this, uh, this passage? And uh, I refer to three that are here. There is a word of assurance And then secondly, there's a word of responsibility. And then finally, there's a word of promise. But I think you will see that all three of these are unchangeables for us even today. That word of assurance relates to us. The word of responsibility relates to us. And then the promise relates to us. But beginning with the word of assurance. And here he is appealing to history. And he's assuring him that the way I have been operating with Moses in days past is exactly the way that I will work with you in the days ahead. Last part of both verse 5 and verse 9. As I was with Moses so I will be with you. And then also in, in, uh, in the other verse, uh, verse 9, I will be with you. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. But he says, as I've been with Moses. And Joshua was well acquainted with how he had been with Moses. You remember that he was one of the two of the ten spies that said, let's go ahead. God is with us. And because of that, he, along with Caleb, was permitted to live through the 40 years in the wilderness. 
And so he was well acquainted with Moses in all those years, as I was with Moses. But how was he with Moses? Was it, was it just, you know, being there? Yeah, but it was more than that. He was with Moses, especially in terms of what's relevant for us, he was there in a way that enabled Moses, equipping him, making him comp competent to face and to do what he was called to face and to do. And so here he is saying that, you know, just as I made Moses capable of the responsibility, so I will be with you and I will make you competent. You will be able to fulfill the responsibility that has passed on to you. Well, I think Joshua would need that word at that point. But how about us? We might say, well, that's well and good for Joshua and the people that he's going to lead, but how about, how about you and I? Well, there's some passages in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, that could be a scary thought. You know, if our security is all about money, hey, just back off a little bit. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I think that's kind of intriguing and interesting that the argument for not loving money is the assurance of God's presence, that he will be there with us and make us capable of f fulfilling our responsibility. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then similarly, in that uh, well-known great commission in Matthew's edition of that, where Jesus has, has just said before he ascends, go and make disciples of all people from all the many different uh, groups of people of all nations. And then at the end he says that I've been given all authority and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The church is called to make disciples. And I take it especially for the church. As individuals, we have all kinds of different kinds of responsibilities, but in our togetherness. These were the 12 or the 11 apostles, the embryo of the church, really, that was to be. And they are called, the church is called, make disciples. But there's, there's the assurance of the equipping. God's enabling presence is what we need to take into account as we go into our unknown futures. The assurance that whatever situation or circumstance that we might face, he will be with us. Are you going to face death this year? Are you going to face serious illness this year? Are you going to face uncertainty? Is there going to be difficulties in your job situation, in your family situation? Challenging circumstances. He's with you. He's with you. But let's not only think negatively. Let's think of the positive ones too. Just as much. He is with us in those. And that's when we need to remember that we represent Christ and we want his will so that in this context of opportunity and positive experience, 
we want him to be at the center. The word of assurance. And the word of assurance has to do with being able to fulfill this responsibility. And that brings me to the second one. And it's interesting how these really go together. <laughs> the word of assurance had to do with responsibility. And so the word of responsibilities, these were the instructions that God had given to Moses that he was to learn and to enforce as leader. And that's what Joshua must carry on. Verse 7 and 8, he says, be strong, be careful, the second part of the verse, be careful, verse 7, to obey all the law that my servant Moses gave to you. That's the word of responsibility. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Then he goes on, verse 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful in your obedience. If we break it down a little bit, there's, there's uh, A, that very careful, exacting obedience. Be conscientious about this. Don't waver. Don't turn to either the left or to the right, but go straight ahead. If you're going to experience my blessing, you need to be careful to obey my word. But in order to do that, you need to really know my word. And so he says in verse 8, keep it on your lips, meditate, meditate on it. What is meditation? Well, it's reflecting upon. It's musing over, it's pondering. And that word meditation in biblical times meant to growl or to utter or moan as well as to meditate or muse. And thus it involved a muttering sound from reading half aloud or conversing with oneself. And uh, I don't know if you uh, are into talking to yourself or not. Sometimes I do, but I, one thing I think we can say in all fairness, that when somebody is kind of talking to themselves, they're focused, they're absorbed, right? At least that's my excuse. <laughs> you catch me doing that. And so he says, you know, I think that's what it means, too, that you are to keep it on your lips, you see. As you ponder this, you have to really meditate upon this. Continuously. Always. That sounds like it's to be part of life. So we might ask, but well, why do we need to meditate? And uh, I, want to, I want to expand on that a bit. So I think it's very practical for today. Why do we need to meditate on God's Word? Well, to really understand it. To really get it. It's not just a matter of quickly reading it and sort of remembering it, but to think it through. Meditate. But there's a further reason, and that would be to begin to understand the implications, how to apply it to life. You see, it's one thing to understand the basic meaning of the text. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty easy to understand that. But it's another thing to understand how it applies practically in my daily life. I think we've probably all met people who seem so more absorbed and more excited about 
their exact doctrine. You know, they got it all worked out. But it's almost like that's more important to them than putting it into practice and living the life. And oh, I'm sure that was part of my experience, maybe still, but as I was a seminary student, yeah, you know. You are concerned about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But you know, the essential thing is being able to recognize the implications for living and putting it into practice. And I say that takes some meditation. And particularly here among the leaders, because we can't expect every individual to be a strong Bible student. Some people simply aren't made to be students. Some people are not able to read. It's a fairly high percentage of Canadians that are not functionally literate. But as leaders in the church, we need to meditate and understand the practical implications. There's another one here, too, that I want to go a little further. Faithful, careful reflection is needed for us so that we understand how to apply the teaching to our particular era. The applications needed for 1988 aren't always going to be relative or relevant in 2018. There's a very intriguing verse that literally stands out in a list of respective uh, numbers, statistics, in Chronicles. The book of Chronicles is very much about statistics as they numbered the tribes and they give the exact number of people in the tribe. And it goes on to list the numbers of various tribes. And then this verse about Isaacer, 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 32, of Isaacer, those who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And then he gives a number. Understanding of the times. Because times are a-changing. And the call is to be able to relate the unchangeable teaching of God's Word to the changing times. And it's going to sound different. It's going to be different. I wonder how many, uh, I wonder how many people under 20 have ever heard of penicillin. I don't have any volunteers here, but uh, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a child and teenager, it was the wonder drug. Now you don't hear about it anymore. There's a, an article in uh, CT uh, just recently that uh, mentioned what has happened in our world of antibiotics. We, we, we build up a resistance to antibiotics. And then it mentioned uh, penicillin, which was that wonder drug, is almost useless in most applications today. Times are a-changing. And we need to ponder God's word in order to understand better how it relates to today's world. And one of the things that are changing so much is the various generations. They keep changing in their mindset. I belonged to what was called the builders. And then short, shortly after me were the boomers. And oh my, how, how we talked about those baby boomers, you know? Well, they're getting to be the old people now. And then after the baby boomers, the Generation X. And then the millennials. And now Generation Z 
coming along. Those are the ones born in the late 90s and the early 2000s. They're becoming adults, Generation Z. And we want to be a church. We need to understand the times. We want to be a church of all ages, right? Definitely. But to be a church of all ages, we have to have an understanding of the different generations and be prepared to accept the reality that they look at things differently than us old people look at. Careful study and meditation so that you can understand God's Word in its unchanging character and how do I relate to it, how do I relate it to today's world. Meditation. In his book, Living Faith, Jimmy Carter says, the best advice I've ever known came from my former teacher, Miss Julia Coleman, whom I quoted in my presidential inaugural address. And here's the quote. We must adjust to changing times and still hold to unchanging principles. For her, changing times meant the advent of gramophones, school buses, electricity, talking movies, and radio programs. For us, and this book was copyrighted in 96, for us, it means supersonic jets, genetic engineering, personal computers, and the internet. Yet, Ms. Coleman's wisdom still holds true. We're going into a new era. Lots of changes. We are in a new era. But we're going into a new year. We need God's unchanging word, but we need to ponder it in a way where we look for how does it relate to today's world. And in the days ahead, I know that you're in a search. There's a search committee. You'll be getting a permanent pastor. I don't know that it'll necessarily be this year. We're not going to predict that just now. But obviously, an important criteria is you will need a pastor who understands today's world. And that, how do you do church today? It's not the same, folks, as how you did church 20, 30, 40 years ago. Times are changing. Well, in order to be prepared for what is ahead, the people of Israel need to take seriously the responsibility of God's word to be able to do it. And then as they obey that, as they ponder it and obey it, then there's the word of promise. The word of promise. Verse 7. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go that you may be successful. And then also in verse verse 8, then you will be prosperous and successful. As you keep this word upon your lips, as you ponder it, as you know it, as you relate it to your situation, then you will be successful. What was success for them? Well, of course, it was about possessing the land and being able to occupy it fully and to be able to stay in the land. For us, that's not success. For us, it's not about that. And uh, nor is it about success 
as it is so often measured in today's world. And we sang a lot about the kingdom this morning. And that is one of the essential differences between the two kingdoms, how we measure success. And for the kingdom of this world, so often success is measured by having the best of everything in this life, you know, health and wealth and prosperity and prominence, having great achievements, having undeserved happiness. And for us as Christians, we are often blessed with many of the above. And I'm grateful for the kind of life God has given me. I've had, I've had so much of both. Okay, but you know what? We are called to have other goals as the primary goals. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and we sang about that. And instead of a life of comfortable self-indulgence, we are called to be alert to serving others. In fact, Jesus taught that whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. We're called to represent Jesus well in dispensing love and grace, mercy, compassion, caring for others. And of course, at the very base, we are called to be people of integrity. You know, as we think about our life, and uh, nice to get the affirmation while we're still alive, but if it's at a memorial service, I mean, what could be better than to hear that here's a person who lived with integrity. Here's a person who had a servant heart. Here is a person who represented Jesus so well in the way that she offered grace and mercy and compassion. Here's a person who tried to use her gifts in a way that honored the Lord and helped others. Here might be a person that didn't reach fame, wasn't really well known beyond her network, and yet how successful, how very successful that would be in terms of God's measure of success. What would success mean as a church? Growing in numbers? Becoming a large church? Not necessarily. A better criteria is whether or not its people are becoming the kind of people that I just described. See, to put it in sort of almost crude terms, I will simply say there's a sense in which a church is a people factory. We produce. We, we are the very context in which formation takes place of people. And who I am today is partly because of the way the church I grew up in influenced me. We are in the people forming business, people shaping. And as we look ahead to our future as a church, perhaps the very first question to ask ourselves is, what kind of people do we want to become? What kind of people do we want to produce as new people come and become part of us? What kind of people do we want to shape? Of course, we know they're to be Christ-like. But again, meditation, meditation, reflection on what, what does that all be?
And so maybe first of all, start with what kind of people do we want to produce? And then secondly, what kind of a congregation do we need to be so that we can produce those kind of people? And then thirdly, what kind of leaders do we need so that we can be that kind of congregation so we can produce those kind of people? And then after that, what kind of pastor do we need so that we can have those kind of leaders so that together we can form that kind of congregation so that we become that kind of people? But it's about people. Success as a church really has a lot to do with what kind of people are being what are the people being formed into in our church? Unchangeables in a rapidly changing world. The assurance, the word of assurance of his enabling presence. The responsibility to learn, to teach, to obey his word. And then the promise of success according to kingdom standards. I want to conclude by drawing your attention to a very familiar text in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything. Through him I'm capable. Capable of what? Big dreams? No. He's not talking about that. Because in that context, he's talking about being able to be content in all kinds of situations. Because just before that, he's been saying, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Think of it. I can handle it. I can handle difficulties with contentedness because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We don't know what this new year will bring. Sickness or health, happiness or sorrow, life or death, probably a combination of many things. But the point is, we can handle it because of his enabling presence as we are encouraged, as we are directed, as we are corrected by the word that doesn't change. And then we will have success according to his measure of success.